Welcome to Jane Unchained, featuring best-selling author, TV journalist, and JaneUnchained.com founder, Jane Velez Mitchell. In the next few minutes, you'll hear a secret solution to the problems that plague our world. If you want to revolutionize your life, get truly joyful, and jump to the next phase of human evolution, all it takes is one simple choice. Now, here's your host, Jane Velez Mitchell. Welcome. We are so thrilled to have you on this very special broadcast of Voice America Radio. We are talking about the New York Times, which held a Feed the World virtual talk uh, back on October 13th. And um, most of the people on this panel attended it, including myself. And we were um, perturbed because uh, world hunger is a global crisis. Uh, the New York Times itself has been reporting on it. Let's just start with a roundtable of your overall thoughts. First of all, we want to applaud the New York Times for tackling this issue. So this isn't about uh, putting anybody down. It's just about a lack of perspectives that I think need to be included in the conversation because we are in a race against time. Donnie Moss, what were your thoughts regarding the Feed the World Summit that the New York Times held? Um. It, well, it was it was disappointing because one of the things that we all were hoping is that they would address this this core notion that we could feed the planet if, in fact, people made the shift to a plant-based diet. And it wasn't even on the radar screen of the panelists as a solution. It, it was only because so many people chimed in with questions that one of the moderators felt that she had to ask the question. And then the answer was not what we were expecting. Uh, she was sort of dismissive of, of that alternative or that option as a solution. Well, let's get to that clip. We have it here and I'm going to uh, attempt to play it right now uh, because I think that is the heart of the issue. So give me one second. We're gonna try to play that clip right this second and uh, we can discuss it afterwards. Uh, because we want to be respectful of the fact that the New York Times held this conference. That is absolutely terrific. Um, we're not trying to uh, suggest that um, th their heart wasn't in the right place. It was simply the answers that perturbed us. So I'm going to share this right now. And now I'm going to play this and hope it plays. Um, and plant-based diets to uh, also help with um, climate change. So okay, we're going to go back to the top of that. To plant-based diets and other ways that agriculture and the food system might need to evolve to take on things like food insecurity and climate change. So again, Greg, if you can start with that, and then I'll ask Sarah to weigh in as well. I'm sorry, it was, you were completely uh, breaking up. I didn't catch any of it. Oh, no. Uh, hopefully you can hear me. It was a question about changes to agriculture, either shifts to plant-based diets or other changes to deal with climate change. I can step in and, and I, I heard the question, sure, so maybe I can, I can, I can help with that. All right. So shifts in diet um, and plant-based diets to uh, also help with um, climate change. So, you know, plant-based diets and the shift to plant-based diets has been a growing, um, kind of a growing area of uh, conversation for a lot of folks. 
And the shift to plant-based diets is occurring largely in affluent communities right now. It's, it's not really a shift that's happening in other parts of the world. And so when you think of this in the context of climate change, think of this in the, in the context of how much protein uh, the average person consumes, uh, say in the U.S. versus in China and then in sub-Saharan Africa. You're really looking at you know consumption where in the U.S. the average meat consumption is going to be two times at least the average consumption of someone in China, and someone in China is going to be the average Chinese person will eat about three times as much uh, protein on a per capita basis than someone in sub-Saharan Africa. And so when we think of plant-based diet shifts, what's happening is that protein intake is growing rapidly in other parts of the world outside of the U.S. where the populations are younger and they're growing much faster. And those communities are culturally tied to meat in a different way than in the U.S. And so when you think of plant-based diets, it's really happening and occurring in areas and in countries where the protein consumption and meat consumption is already quite high. And so you're substituting it. Whereas in many, many other parts of the world, your baseline starting point is like, three kilograms per capita per year or four kilograms per capita per year. And so in those areas, and I, I always give this example where I say in Ethiopia, like if you don't serve meat to someone when they come to your home as a guest, like that's an insult. And so it's, you know, we're, we're, we're really facing shifts that are different dynamically around the world. But one thing to keep in mind is that most of the remit, you know, kind of outside of the U.S., the populations are young, the economies are still in growth mode, and there's still a lot of upside. And so I think we're going to have to come up with very aggressive solutions to climate change uh, because uh, plant-based moving to plant-based diets won't, won't quite get us there. So uh, that moving to plant-based diets won't quite get us there, first of all, um, I think some of what she said made perfect sense. What she's saying is that it's a different equation if you're talking about the United States or you're talking about China or you're talking about um, other countries like Latin America, Africa, the Middle East. I get it. Uh, one of the things that disturbed me was that there is this equation still with protein and meat used interchangeably. Um, Adita, can you address that? Because that, that seemed to be, that's the old canard. People, we're, in fact, when I confronted the foreign uh, secretary, one of the top uh, representatives from Australia about the live export trade, um, and she said, we're feeding protein to the developing world and walked away from me, uh, when obviously there is plant-based protein that can be fed to the developing world and the developing world could grow their own plant-based protein. Adita, take it away. Yes, I also was very disappointed and surprised to hear that panelist uh, use protein to equal meat, which is just sort of a very antiquated viewpoint. But your point is true, of course, that this is just animal agriculture is a wildly inefficient and destructive way to feed the world. And the fact that this would not have even been brought up as an issue had so many of us not submitted those questions that they had no choice was just such a shock to me and all of us on that call that this is the New York Times. They extensively cover environmental destruction that is directly caused by animal agriculture. And it was as if this issue didn't even exist. And just in doing my own research, which clearly all of those panelists could do, they all were well-educated people in their field, 
I um, found a study conducted by researchers from the Institute on the Environment and the University of Minnesota, where scientists investigated agricultural resources and the problem of world hunger. It was found that if humans consumed the crops instead of feeding them to, to animals, the world supply would be enriched by approximately 70% more food, which would adequately support another 4 billion people. The surplus alone would be sufficient to feed more than half the Earth's population, many times more than the 925 million hungry people of our time. So just from a numbers perspective and common sense, feeding the majority of crops to animals that are then slaughtered for food is an injustice. It is an, one of the main causes of environmental destruction leading to climate change and human health issues. So the fact that the New York Times was sort of asleep at the wheel and even the way they answered the question showed just a fundamental sort of misunderstanding of the issue just shows how serious a problem this is, um, even sort of in the, in the highest levels of mainstream media, that this information is not being put out there. And we can quibble about statistics. Um, at least 36% of the world's crop calories are used for animal feed. That's the widely accepted estimate, although there are many people say it's far higher than that. According to the New York Times own reporting, an estimated 265 million people could be pushed to the brink of starvation by the end of this year. That's why we felt it was incumbent upon us to really speak truth to power and hold our own virtual talk about feeding the world. Um, part of the problem, I think, is who was invited to the talk. Tremendous experts, no, no problems with any of the people who were on the panel, but what about some other people? What about, for example, um, Mark Bittman, who has written How to Feed the World, uh, a New York Times article that I'm holding here in my hands with recycled paper that I printed on. He is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. And he wrote an article saying, paradoxically, paradoxically, as increasing numbers of people can afford to eat well, food for the poor will become scarcer because demand for animal products will surge and they require more resources like grain to produce. Um, I would certainly include him if I was doing a panel. I would include Tracy McWhorter, who is an incredible um, author and expert who has written and has an organization, 10,000 Black Women Going Vegan. I would include Dr. Silas Rao, who, guess what, is here with us now. Dr. Rao, um, I would love you to tackle the same question that the New York Times panel asked of its panelists. Admittedly, one couldn't hear because of technical problems, but we, we, we grabbed the clip that was the answer. Um, if you were asked that question, if you were on the panel, given that you are a Stanford PhD who is instrumental in the acceleration of inter internet speeds, a systems analyst, an engineer, and the author of a white paper that clearly documents that animal agriculture is the leading destructive force on our planet. What would you say if you were on that panel? Well, I would absolutely agree with the questioner that if we, if we transition to a plant-based diet, we can easily feed the world and eliminate hunger. Basically, you know, if we, if we are serious about our sustainable development goals, and there were 17 goals that we all agreed to. 195 nations agreed to these goals. 
And goal number two was zero hunger. Okay, and the UN has agreed to implement zero hunger by 2030. And if we were really serious about that, uh, we would be dealing with it as if it's a holistic problem, right? Not doing it piecemeal, one at a time. But what the nations of the world have been doing is they have signed these sustainable development goal agreements and they are focusing just on economic growth as the way to address all the goals, which is goal number eight in the sustainable development goals. So we have a campaign saying drop goal number eight because if you meet all the other goals, you really don't care whether the economy is growing or not. If there is no poverty, if there is no hunger, if there is gender equality, if all these other goals are met, who cares if some number is growing, right? So, because that is the Trojan horse goal that's put in place so that people can pretend they're trying to address all the goals. And so I would say, you know, you're absolutely right, but that requires a completely different system. It's a completely different way of doing things where we have to start by saying that all animals belong and we all belong on earth and we need to create a, create a system in which that is a normal, you know, that is normal, that we all belong. And uh, unfortunately, the New York Times is still in the same colonial era, I think. It's the old way of looking at things. Why is that, one follow-up question, why is that a colonialist attitude? So the colonialist attitude says that even though, you know, we begin by saying everyone has an inalienable right to life, uh, we all have to earn a living. Well, if we have a right to life that is given to us by the creator, why do we have to earn a living? That is the colonialist attitude. But the colonialists are saying, unless you serve the master, you are not entitled to live, which is the exact opposite of our declaration of independence. Right? And so that starts out by telling people you don't belong. You're not going to get anything. You're going to starve to death unless you do what we ask you to do. And if you don't have enough jobs, sorry, you're going to, you know, you're going to starve to death anyway. So that is the mindset we are in. That's the game that we are in, the colonial game. And it's still propagating, you know, uh, even though colonialism is supposedly over. I think um, if I could take away, my big takeaway from what you're saying is that we could live in a world of natural abundance where there is no world hunger. Absolutely. That the mindset that meat is a given and that when people get more, um, get wealthier and when um, countries and regions of the world start developing a larger middle class, they are automatically going to gravitate toward eating dead animals. That assumption is a, um, in your mindset, a colonialist assumption. Whereas if we had a new mindset, we could say we could live in a world of natural abundance where everybody has everything they need to eat, but we are systematically with the animal agriculture system creating artificial scarcity by feeding at least 36%. Some say it's far higher because, you know, they skew these numbers mm -hmm. to a lot of the, the, the data that goes into it is provided by allies of the animal agriculture system. So they have ways of skewing the numbers, but let's say at least 36%, uh, which is widely accepted of all 
grain and food produced crops goes into feeding farm animals. If you just took that 36% and fed it directly to people, you would make a ginormous leap in reducing world hunger. So Lisa Carlin, as you hear all of this, what are your thoughts? Because you also attended the New York Times Feed the World virtual talk. Well, I'd like to respond to the part about protein, because what we don't understand, and this is just a little science-y, but I'll be brief, is that the only organisms on planet Earth who make protein are plants and fungi, meaning mushrooms. That's it. Animals are unable to make protein. They have to eat plants, and then that, that the protein that they eat from the plants is converted into other types of muscle that people consume. We don't have to go to the so-called middleman. We can go directly to the plants for the protein. So if all of these countries were growing food for their populations as opposed to growing feed for livestock, these populations in third world nations would have plenty, plenty of food to eat. That's the bottom line. Plants make protein. If we want protein, we need to eat plants. And when you eat animals, you get the protein minus the fiber, which causes disease. But when you eat the plants, you get the plants plus the fiber and all of the nutrients, which gives a much more nutritious um, amount of food for human beings. And people that eat plants are healthier than people that eat animals. So let me say this, Donnie Moss. It seems that The New York Times obviously is the most influential newspaper in the world. They set to a large degree cultural norms. They have written extensively um, in either uh, opinion pieces that are submitted or actual articles about the problems of animal agriculture. They've done a lot of reporting on slaughterhouse workers dying of COVID-19, of COVID-19, of slaughterhouses being a hotbed of of the coronavirus. They've done stories about the fact that the coronavirus is a zoonotic illness that jumped from animals to people. I think there's a headline that says our cruel treatment of animals, you know, basically brought us this uh, pandemic. They've done stories about climate change. Mark Bittman, he's, you know, uh, he's written about it extensively and he is a contributing uh, opinion writer for the New York Times. Why do you think that there is this really Fierce, it, it would appear fierce resistance to address this issue when it's not really that complicated. Whereas 36, at the very least, 36% of the world's crops go in, into feeding farm animals. Whereas it takes eight to 25 pounds of grain to produce one pound of steak or beef. Wherefore, if we took animal agriculture out of the equation, we could feed literally billions of people and it's a crisis because we have hundreds of millions of people now on the verge of starvation exacerbated a a crisis exacerbated by a zoonotic pandemic so you know so first of all the new york times uh the panelists who participated were not employed by the new york times right right. so they could have just as easily as you mentioned earlier had other panelists who might have addressed the impact of animal agriculture on the planet and the benefits of a plant-based diet to feeding the world um but in general this issue is it's a tough nut to crack ezra klein who's the co-founder of vox and was a columnist for the washington post he recently interviewed Bill Gates on his own podcast and asked him about 
uh, factory farming uh, and the pandemic and the connections? And is this something we should be concerned about? And Bill Gates, who we all know is very bright and very aware and himself invests in plant-based meat companies, deflected. It, it is, it's like it was, it's too big a nut to crack. He, he kind of dismissed the topic and tried to move to something else. And it, and it, and it goes to show the impact that uh, people, people like their meat and so much so that they're willing to allow the climate to be destroyed and pandemics to spread and the ocean, oceans to have dead zones and species to go extinct. And so it's a very big, uh, a tough nut to crack. And I think that's I think that's what what we saw on this um, uh, with that woman from the New York Times panel uh, who gave the answer she did. Uh, there were other comments, and we grabbed them as we could. So let's hear this one, and uh, I will share the screen, and then we will discuss on the other side. Uh, and it's going to take me a second to get it into position. Here we go. Witness is fragility of those supply chains that we've driven so efficiently to our distribution network. We look at certain things related to technology by way of example. Uh, in developed nations, we have driven tremendous efficiency into our distribution networks and supply chains. And in fact, what we witnessed is fragility of those supply chains that we've driven so efficiently. Uh, clearly, the pandemic unpredicted by most, but stressed every facet, everything from the grower or the producer to the distribution channel. We consumed and we've driven through things like technology, like just-in-time. We've driven towards a supply in a, a retail store of something less than 10 days, depending upon the actual SKU itself. But the complexity is, is in that 10-day period during COVID, we consumed 60-plus supply day supply uh, of the inventory that was on the shelf, clearing out virtually everything off the shelf. So while we've driven over the years to great efficiency, um, using technology to help us do that for better insights, using analytics, for better supply demand calculations driven through great ERP systems and distribution systems, as Greg talked about, all of the ports throughout the world, and we're not only dealing with the inbound uh, and export of product, but we also have to consider, which has become extremely important given the pandemic, and that is food safety. So we've layered on and have use of great technology, but it comes down to things like policy. It comes down to things like organizing around the structure, as Jose mentioned, um, supporting the local farmer whilst at the same time using broader ecosystems that um, are uh, far reaching beyond just the borders of the country. Um, <laughs> okay, so I would like somebody to weigh in on that because, um, okay, <laughs> Adida, take a crack at it. Well, again, listening to that sitting there, it was just um, such a shocking moment and so disappointing because talking about, you know, um, the food supply chain and how um, things were affected due to COVID, and there was no mention of the source of the pandemic, which of course can't come, came from um, farming animals, selling animals for slaughter, and that has been the source of other pandemics. I thought that that would be addressed 
um, somewhere in this entire panel webinar, and it was not in any way brought up. Um, in fact, the answers that were given um, in relation to the pandemic just again seemed to show a complete um, void of uh, understanding or information uh, related to the root causes of these issues. So it really was shocking. I kept thinking, is someone going to jump in and um, address these issues? And luckily they did have the option for us to ask questions, but it wasn't enough. And we hope that by us asking several questions related to this, I specifically also asked about the COVID issue and how should that um, affect and inform our um, decisions about the future of food and how to feed people, that question wasn't asked, but we would hope that in the future, if another panel like this is formed, there will be more thought put into who should be on there and the different scope of um, information and perspectives to give, as Dr. Salesh Rao um, talks about. He should be on that, on that panel, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Rao, you, you, know, uh, you just heard... Again, there were very long answers. So we're giving you a sense of this uh, New York Times Feed the World virtual talk. When you listen to that woman about technology and supply chains and um, what she said, what, what occurred to you? Well, you know, we spend a lot of time and effort optimizing the supply chain uh, getting food from the poor to the rich, from the growers to who's consuming it, right? And we consider that to be commerce and a lot of people make money, you know, in the supply chain. Uh, but then when we send food back to the people who are growing in order to feed them and so that they are not hungry, so sending resources and food from the rich to the poor is considered charity. And you're not supposed to make money off of that, you know? So it's one of those things we have, we have sort of optimized one way and we make a lot of money going this way and then we don't do anything on the other side of giving food back to the people who are growing it for us. And fundamentally, this is happening because of animal agriculture. Because because we have lied to people saying you really need to eat animals in order to, um, to grow big and strong, you know, now all these people are generating food for the animals, you know. Um, so it's part of the supply chain is to supply food for the animals. And then the animals are consumed by rich people. So then the poor people are starving. So literally, we are taking food away from where it's truly needed among humanity and using it to um, give bad food to people who are then getting sick. It's like everyone is suffering up and down the chain, Right. And this, this, to me, this supply chain that she's talking about is so inefficient, so poorly engineered that if any systems engineer, you know, if, if someone in my team came up with a solution like this, they would be fired because it is so bad, right? So many people are not getting the food they need. So many people are getting bad food and, and we are growing more food than we really need. So it is such an inefficient system but a lot of people are making a lot of money off of this and that is driving it. And that is driving the New York times also not to say anything about it because they have a lot of advertisers who are paying for the New York times. So Donnie Moss, several years ago, the New York times held a climate summit uh, at Paramount studios and 
um, several of us went, Lisa Carlin, myself, and um, Ken Spector, the founder of Happy Cow, and two other uh, vegan activists. And it was the exact same thing. This was several years ago. Nobody mentioned animal agriculture and its impact on the climate at all. And then when it came time for questions, we all were scattered about and we raised our hands and we started asking questions. And one of the people on the panel, Mark Ruffalo, the actor, was actually very interested. Everybody else was squirming. And they seemed, it was like we'd spoken the, the idea that should never speak its name. You know, the truth that dare not speak its name. And they were squirming because guess what? Afterwards, they served pork at their soiree that occurred on Paramount Studios afterwards. And we went live and then we were asked to leave. Um, and uh, so I was hoping that in the intervening years, this was several years ago, uh, that, that their attitude would have changed because we've had the Beyond Meat IPO, we've had the pandemic, we've had the discussion uh, much more widely of the impact of climate change, uh, of the impact of animal agriculture on climate change. It doesn't seem though that there's been much movement. And I say this respectfully, look, um, these are the best and the brightest, but remember that was a sarcastic title. The best and the brightest brought us the Vietnam War. Take it away, Donnie. Well, Jane, you know, it, 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 looking back at that event, it really comes as no surprise that there was uh, no talk about the importance of a plant-based diet, you know, and the impact of animal agriculture on climate change. Because even right now, we are in the midst of a global pandemic that has completely disrupted our lives. And there's still virtually no public discourse about what to do to prevent the next one. You know, and, and I say that, of course, knowing that this one was caused by the consumption of animals. I will say this, there are a couple of people who are talking about it. Fareed Zakaria, he's a CNN anchor, a political scientist and author, and his most recent book, uh, Lessons for Post-Pandemic uh, World, he does, he does talk about it. Uh, he says COVID has, first of all, I'll say, you know, he thinks that there is room for change and, that, and that's right now. COVID has upended society, people are disoriented, things are already changing, and in that atmosphere, further change becomes easier than ever. So he's saying we need to seize this moment to do what we're talking about here, which is to help society move away from animal agriculture because it's causing climate change. Jane, as you said, you know, was discussed in that New York Times forum and because it's causing pandemics and, uh, and, and destroying human health and destroying our rainforests and our oceans and, uh, and the planet. I want to say this, uh, just looking at the New York Times, the inaugural edition many, many, many years ago attempted to address various speculations on its purpose and positions that preceded its release. Here's a quote. We shall be conservative in all cases where we think conservatism essential to the public good. We shall be radical in everything which may seem to us to require radical treatment and radical reform. We do not believe that everything in society is either exactly right or exactly wrong. What is good, we desire to preserve and improve. What is evil, to exterminate or reform. Given that, 
And given that our entire world is coming apart at the seams because of our abuse of animals, conspiracy theories aside about, oh, China produced it in a lab, which has been discredited, it cropped up first amongst people who had visited a wet market, a slaughter market in China. SARS, same thing, different province, wet slaughter market in China. You have mad cow disease. You have um, swine flu, which I've read reports that there are eruptions of swine flu in China right now that jump from the pigs to people. And, and you know, unfortunately, the solution is to build skyscraper factory farms. That is a horror story right there. Um, and uh, so essentially, we have these pandemics that one, we're going through, it's destroyed the economy, killed, you know, well, just in the United States alone, well over 200,000 people, um, ruining lives, a horrible tragedy. And connect is something that the paper of record, the most influential newspaper in the world, um, has, with the exception of a few opinion pieces, not done. So, uh, Lisa Carlin, what would you tell them if you had a chance to talk to some of the editors at the New York Times? And I, I've heard that some of them are actually vegetarians, so that's, that's interesting. Yeah, I, would, I would tell them that we have to step back and take a look at the big picture because what's going on from an environmental point of view, what's going on from just simply our own personal health, when you look at the rise of chronic diseases, heart disease is our number one killer in Western society. This is vastly or largely preventable and reversible with a plant-based diet. Obesity has many complications, including diabetes. People don't die of diabetes. They die of the complications from diabetes. So when you look at our major killers, including Alzheimer's disease, because there's a strong connection that plant-based diets um, can ward off the onset of, of Alzheimer's disease. So when you just put all the chronic diseases together, let's look at that. Then step back and look at the environment, look at what we're doing. And then certainly we have to look at the morality of what we're doing in terms of how we treat animals. We are going at super speeds down a highway off a cliff and nobody is paying attention. We are driving off that cliff. We need to step back, take a look, look at being able to change the farms so that they can, instead of growing feed for livestock, they grow food for people and just slowly move away from animal agriculture into a plant-based agricultural society. We will be healthier. The planet will be healthier. And certainly we don't have to live with the moral consequences of what it is we do to other living beings on this planet. Uh, Dr. Rao, if you had the opportunity because look, we're doing this to basically try to get a message out to the powers that be, to the best and the brightest that, hey, you're missing the key piece of the puzzle here. We are, as Lisa said, barreling toward um, an ecological apocalypse. Um, there's been reporting recently, something like 68% of all wildlife has been destroyed in the last 50 years. The Amazon is on fire. As the New York Times reported several months ago, more than 20 times the size of Manhattan destroyed in the Amazon, largely for cattle grazing. They say logging as well, but that's a byproduct. They're clearing the land for cattle grazing. The Pantanal, which is the world's largest 
um, wetlands is also being set on fire uh, for animal agriculture. We spoke to a woman who is there and she uh, was crying. She was literally sobbing and she sent us videos of, of jaguars with their paws burned off to clear land for cattle grazing. How can people who can understand the nuances of the Mueller investigation not connect the dots that animal agriculture is the most inefficient food source? It's using at least 36% of the crops. It is a leading, you've made a case for the leading cause of climate change, uh, certainly the leading cause of habitat destruction, wildlife extinction, deforestation, water pollution, drought, et cetera, et cetera. How is it possible that they can't connect these dots that teenagers like Greta Thunberg are connecting? Dr. Rao. Yeah. Clearly, they have connected the dots and they have made a decision that they're not going to talk about it. So it is, uh, it is the, you know, it's, we lie to our children in our, in our textbooks, right, about protein and calcium. I mean, these, we know this are scientific myths that we are propagating to our children. We make our children drink milk every day in our schools, right? So we are a society that lies to its children. So obviously, we're going to expect lies in other places too when we do that. So I think it's one of those fundamental things that we need to ask ourselves, who are we as a people? Do we have integrity as people? And are we going to start telling the truth about these things? You know, and the New York Times has to look in the mirror and ask that question too. But well, first and foremost, I would say even the children, right? We, we yes. shouldn't be lying to our children. I will say this. I, I'm a fan of the New York Times. I've always had a subscription. My dad would do the New York Times Sunday crossword puzzle in ink. I grew up reading the New York Times and arguing with my father about all the front page stories. I have nothing against the New York Times. Um, but, you know, when you read the New York Times, you see that they often go back and they correct themselves and they say, wow, we've, we ignored all these women who, who accomplished so many things. We didn't give them the time of day. We um, dismiss them and they look at their own reporting from the past. They did the same thing with minority communities. And they said, look at our horrible reporting, whether it was 50 <clears throat> years ago or 100 years, you know, a long time ago. I don't have the exact uh, launch date, but uh, they look at their reporting. I've read these articles with great interest, how they acknowledge their own sexism and their own racism in their reporting from the past. Right. In the future, they will look back and they will say, wow, we missed the biggest story of our lifetimes. If they are alive to say that, because if we destroy all the wildlife on this planet, which we are on a trajectory to do well within a decade, we are going to experience an ecological collapse that is going to be bad for everything, including the New York Times, including all their advertisers, including all the hedge funders, including all the software companies. If we can't walk across the street because it's too hot, okay? Nothing else matters. None of the other issues that the New York Times covers matter if we are essentially on the verge of extinction. So I would love to get Donnie Moss's take on that. What would you say? I mean, you are a born and bred New Yorker. You are living in Greenwich Village right now, as so is Adida. We all read the New York Times. You know, it, it's 
it's frustrating because this, who, whichever, whichever media enterprise, major media enterprise gets honest about this issue, needs to get a Pulitzer. And Jane, of course, the New York Times has had more Pulitzers than anybody, but you know what I'm saying. Jane, even with the New York Times, we come upon this roadblock that we exist, that, that exists in every mainstream media outlet, which is the advertisers. Uh, I think it's safe to say that companies that you know, sell fur and sell animals uh, for, for food are advertising in the New York Times. So perhaps there's some of this, we can't bite the hand that feeds us. That could be playing into why we're not seeing more information about what you're calling, rightly so, is the biggest story of our time that they're overlooking. Um, in terms of what I would say to, uh, if I had uh, an audience with the uh, editorial board of the New York Times, it, it, don't you have children? Don't you have grandchildren? Don't you want a planet to be here so that when you're gone, they'll have, they'll have, a, they'll have a planet, a, a safe and healthy planet on which to live? Um, and so, but I think in general, Jane, people are short-sighted. They're living in the present. And this, uh, the ecological catastrophe that awaits us in the future isn't sort of necessarily easy for people to envision. Yes, we have wildfires and hurricanes and droughts and now a pandemic, but uh, the consequences haven't been grave enough for people to step <clears throat> back and say, what do I need to do right now uh, in order to protect this planet uh, from, from its demise? So, I mean, there's gotta be a way, I think looking back at history, um, and, and, you know, uh, looking back at history, we get hints about what other social justice movements have done to get the word out. Um, what we have social media, it's almost equivalent of living in a totalitarian society, uh, and, uh, printing out little leaflets that you surreptitiously hand to people on the street as you try to get the word out. Uh, we're not gonna reach, we don't have the reach of a major media network or um, the New York Times, but one person who hears it, who is an, a person of influence could make the change. I think the first person, the first Bill Gates type or um, one of the heads of one of the, the FANG companies or one of the major media um, commentators who, who, who basically speaks the truth that dare not speak its name, just like Walter Cronkite finally said something about the Vietnam War and changed the whole tenor of the conversation with a very short commentary that had been long overdue. But he will go down in history for that. That's what he's remembered for. And I had the honor to meet Walter Cronkite, so I'm a big fan of you know, his legend and his incredible work. But that's what he's gonna go down in history for. We need people, Adida, to start speaking up. Yes, um, I agree 100%. There is no doubt the New York Times is on the wrong side of history in this issue as they have been in the past and they've owned up to it. But we are in a crisis right now, the future of life on earth depends on solving this problem. And you can't solve a problem until you name it. And um, the information is out there. 
what I found, what struck me as very interesting was the day that this Feed the World panel, the New York Times held, they did a very extensive, devastating investigative reporting piece on that issue of the Pantanal wetlands in Brazil being on fire and a quarter of them being destroyed. Um, the title is The World's Largest Tropical Wetland Has Become an Inferno. And right in there, they talk about the fact that the majority of this land is being used for cattle ranching and that this is a cause of the wildfires. And uh, Climate change accelerates that problem. So it's a lack of connecting the dots. And like you said, it's going to take a brave, radical, quote unquote, person. And when you read the mission of the New York Times, they said something to the effect of that we will be radical if it is necessary. And if ever there is a time to be radical on this issue of the future of life on Earth and animal agriculture and the need to evolve, it is now. So I, you know, hope very soon that we will have that brave mainstream uh, media person to come forward and then we'll make it okay for others. But in the meantime, we do have social media. We have the Jane Unchained News Network and others that are speaking the truth, that are not afraid to be radical. Theirturn.net. Theirturn.net and, and many others. You know, having been in mainstream media, one thing I noticed is that each of these sections in, uh, within a media organization are their own like little feudal states. Yes. And so part of it, and I've seen this firsthand, is that people who write in the food section don't want to be told, you can't talk about this. So that's why you end up seeing on the front page of the New York Times talk about climate change and the pandemic. And then right below it, you have, oh, a recipe for pork. That is a disconnect that needs to be addressed. And um, let's face it, I mean, the food section, yes, I'm sure they have very powerful people within that section, but this paper has a boss and that boss needs to speak up and say, guess what? We got to be on the right side of history here. Um, and so uh, let me ask you, Dr. Rao, if by some miracle, somebody from the New York Times who's got a position of influence or even anybody <laughs> you know, somebody who gets coffee with uh, Soy Kramer for one of the bosses has a chance to see this. What would you say? Uh, lay it on. And I'm going to wait for this garbage place to go by. Lay it on. What what would you say to that person or persons? I would say that this is the this is the moment for us to be serious and to recognize that. Uh, the decisions we are making today is going to impact whether or not we thrive or we die. And what do you want to do? You know, how do you want to be known by future generations? Mm -hmm. You know, this is, this is exactly like 1939. Yeah, uh, I think you huh? said it all. You got muted there for a second. Uh, we've got a call. Paige, uh, you've been holding a very long time. Paige, what is your question or thought? I just want to say that thank you all for this conversation. Yesterday, I participated on a TEDx Green Consumer Project with some youth leaders. And I was, from one year ago to yesterday, I was so happy to hear that the conversation for plant-based, that they were actually talking about plant-based um, choices, although I will tell you what came up, two things accessibility and health. They said, five people said, because of my health, 
And I couldn't help but think of a few celebrities recently who said, I can't be plant-based because of my health. So I think the youth are the future. What I wanted to ask the panel is, how do we get this message of the white paper that Dr. Rao has put out to the public? How do we make that accessible? Thank you, Paige. All right, yeah, you, you raised some really good points. This is a generational thing because younger people don't watch television. I had a teenager staying here for a month and it was just amazing. Would not look at the television no matter what. I'm like, look at this, it's breaking news. No interest, zero interest to come over to the television. That taught me a lot. This is where they're at. Instagram, TikTok, Rizzle, blah, blah, blah. They're getting their information from that. And this is not inundating them to the extent that television does with those sizzling meat commercials and not to mention all the pharmaceutical commercials that come as a result of eating those products. Uh, Because we have to remember, it's not just the meat industry. It's all the industries that benefit from people getting sick because of their consumption of animal products. Processed meat is officially cancer causing, according to the World Health Organization. You would think a discussion of global hunger would bring in the fact that when you're taking food and you're bringing food that's officially cancer causing and giving it to people who are hungry, you are part of the problem, not part of the solution, Lisa Carlin. Yes, that's right. We, we, have, to, we, we have to change the mindset. It's a fundamental change in the mindset. Too many people believe that they need to eat animals in order to be healthy and drink milk for calcium. And all of these things are a fallacy. So we really need to step back and have some people being with integrity to be able to speak up and let people know this is a fallacy. We don't need to eat this way to be healthy. And that's why I think when Game Changers, that was where uh, James Cameron was one of the executive producers, was just a monumental uh, uh, documentary about showing athletes because athletes probably don't care about most athletes don't care about a whole lot except for winning and if they have an edge at winning they'll look at whatever kind of diet they need to to consume and when you look at game changers you see these incredibly um uh 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 uh, 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 uh these, these athletes who have oh, our national rich. championships and Olympians that um, have succeeded beyond everybody else, and they eat a plant-based diet. So we need to get that out. But I still think even Game Changers hasn't reached its full public. It's on Netflix. We can well, see it, it's but there's so many the people that haven't seen it. It is a hit. Everybody on the planet should see it, but you raise an incredible point, Donnie Moss. There. It's almost like the New York Times is operating in a vacuum. I mean, yes, there's cowspiracy, there's game changers, there's what the hell. This information is out there. And, and yet it's like, see no evil, hear no evil when it comes to animal agriculture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it just goes to show the power of uh, people, well, the power of the industry and the power of the lobby uh, and the power of the media, but also the power of people not wanting to change. People don't like change. It's human nature. And that is one of the biggest obstacles we're up against. I will say this. I don't think we can have this conversation without acknowledging uh, one of the solutions that could be on the horizon, whether it arrives in time before we have antibiotic resistance, before we you know, have re- really decimated the planet. And that is technology has brought us these plant-based meat alternatives that could one day entirely replace 
beef and chicken and fish and and dairy. And so um, and so I do I do we do need to acknowledge the power of technology to to help get us out of this mess. Absolutely. I mean, that was the other shocker. When I went to the Paramount Studios New York Times climate event, uh, Beyond Meat hadn't had its most incredibly successful IPO, the Mm -hmm. most successful IPO since the 2008 financial crisis at one point. Now we have talk of um, just reading it yesterday, uh, new IPOs, plant-based ventures coming up, uh, big groups of financiers getting together to take some of the most promising plant-based companies public. You have one of the biggest meat producers in the world, JBS, a Brazilian company, coming up with a vegan product line that is so indistinguishable for meat. When we asked the the vegan certification person, uh, Carissa Kranz, an attorney who's vegan for birth, she couldn't eat it because she said it's like eating meat. So there's another missing piece of the conversation, and that is the fastest growing segment of the supermarket chain. In fact, we have that uh, on the intro to this story. Uh, 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 Let me just read that to you. Um, Veganism is one of the fastest growing food trends. Vegan product sales are booming, outpacing overall food growth by more than five times. Grocery sales of plant-based foods that directly replace animal products have grown 29% in the past two years to $5 billion. Uh, and there is citation for that. So there's another aspect. It's like, wait a second, this is the biggest trend in food. It's pretty much acknowledged across the board. Uh, that, Adina, that just also surprised me that it was only because of our questions yes. um, to, on the chat that, that the issue came up. It was not proactively discussed. Right. It was as if they're living in the 1950s still over there in the New York Times, you know, um, to not bring up the future of food, the, the, uh, the trend toward plant-based eating, and also, you know, the future of lab-grown meat, which many people um, and other financiers are also investing in that because they see that while plant-based meat is also, there's a huge market for that and it's very successful, that also lab-grown meat can be another way to avoid farming animals if people want to have so-called real meat. None of that was discussed. And I'd like to just point out also that even on a small local level, the New York Times is based in New York City, obviously. And throughout this entire pandemic, we have been working hard to get mainstream media to cover the fact that we have 80 wet markets operating right here in New York City. And there is state legislation sponsored by Assemblymember Linda Rosenthal and New York Senator Louis Pulvera that would shut down these wet markets that pose the serious health hazards to all New Yorkers that could be the source of the next pandemic. We've done countless protests, press conferences. I've documented horrific, unlawful conditions. The New York Times has not touched this issue, which other media outlets have, but the New York Times have not touched this issue. And that's also very disappointing because this is something that impacts the almost 9 million people that live in this city. And we have a state, uh, state um, elected officials that are trying to do something about this, and they have not touched this at all, even though I have tried and reached out to them and sent them press conferences often. Uh, so we have to wrap it up. We're out of time. I want to thank my incredible panel for our alternate universe 
virtual talk, feed the world. Anybody from the New York Times, we love to have you on. Can always hope. Um, but seriously, think about this. You know, there is a principle that will keep someone in everlasting ignorance and is a bar against all information, and that is contempt prior to investigation. Thank you so much for joining us. See you next time on Voice America Radio. Thank you for tuning in to Jane Unchained. We hope you'll join Jane Velez Mitchell for the next edition of her program next Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Meanwhile, have a peaceful week.